0: Today we're beginning in verse 35. Paul's discourse on heaven continues, in particular the resurrection, the resurrection body, what things will be like after the return of Christ. He's already addressed the resurrection in a general sense, and so we discussed that a couple weeks ago. There were people in the church at Corinth who didn't believe that there was a resurrection at all. So they were saying, there is no resurrection. He's saying, well, if that's true, then Jesus didn't rise. And if Jesus didn't rise, then you're lost. Why are you even here? Why are we we even doing church if none of this is true? And so on this theme of the resurrection, he raises this next question found in verse 35. Someone will say, how are the the dead raised up? Or, what? body do they have when they come back from the dead so this section these 15 or so verses are discussing what your body will be like on the other side will you be short or tall or skinny or not skinny will you be um, dark-haired or light-haired or what color will your eyes be Will you have the same health problems that you had in this life, or will you be your same self, but just a little better, or maybe a lot better? That's the heart of the question, and so he's dealing with that at length by one metaphor that he repeats over and over, but yet without being terribly specific. So it is an interesting section, and I've titled this The Glory of Heaven. If you are writing things down, and you want to have a Full thought. You can write, the glory of heaven is Christ. Number one, the glory of heaven is Christ. These are just things that I have at the top of my notes. This is not an award-winning sermon today. So if you're looking for a sermon to enter into a preaching contest, this this is a doozy. But number one, the glory of heaven is Christ. Number two, the body of Christ is a demonstration of the glory of Christ. The body of Christ is a demonstration of the glory of Christ. Number three, Christ's glory is seen in his image bearers who in their glorified bodies image him. So the title being the glory of heaven, and that is Jesus. But we, being made in his image, look like him. And so wherever you go in heaven, you're seeing the image of Christ, the image of Christ, the image of Christ everywhere. So, that's where we're going. And we may or may not revisit these three points throughout the message, but I have my doubts. Let's get going. Verse 35. Someone will say, "'How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come?' "'Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain.'" perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. So think with me of this image, this concept, death. That's what he's talking about. So think of the human body at death. Imagine an elderly relative. Let's say your 85-year-old believer, Christian grandmother, who faced a long-term battle with severe illness, and at last, her body has finally shut down. She is not, dying. She's not dead yet, but she is dying, laying there in that hospital bed in her dying state. Perhaps she spends her final days unconscious, sleeping with IVs to keep her hydrated or to keep her comfortable. Perhaps there's painkillers in those IVs as well. As she is declining... Her skin loses its vibrance and turns a gray color. The skin on her face sinks in. When you visit her, in her final hours, you hardly recognize her. When she passes away, the immaterial part of her, her soul, spirit, mind, heart there's a lot of words, by the way, used to describe the immaterial part of you in the Bible. They're not used in some sort of a technical sense, but rather they're just referring in a general sense to the spiritual side of you, the immaterial part of you. You have your body and then your soul, spirit, strength, mind, heart, etc. So when she passes away, the immaterial part of her passes into the direct presence of Christ. The Bible tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that's what happens at death. She, she goes directly into the presence of Christ. But her body doesn't. Her body stays there in that bed until so it's taken to a morgue where they will do some things to the body to prepare it for either burial or cremation or I guess those are your two options. But this text today raises the question, what will happen... At the final resurrection, we know that whether the body is buried or cremated, it turns to dust. It dissolves. It comes apart at a molecular level. So what happens at the final resurrection? What is that body going to be like? Is grandma coming back as an 85-year-old with cancer and heart disease? With the skin in her face sunken in? And then you reflectively, thoughtfully begin to think, boy, I sure hope that I die when I'm good looking so that I can have the next 10 trillion years looking good in heaven instead of not. <laughs> that's behind the question. That's, that's some of the stuff in the back of the minds of the Corinthians who are saying, what's it going to be like on the other side? Because I want it to be, well, better than it is right now. What's my body going to look like? By the way, just to address a question that maybe one or two of you have, heaven is not a ethereal, spiritual, mystical realm where you're just sort of like floating around as disembodied spirits. That's not the eternal state. We don't know what the present condition is of these uh, the, the souls and the spirits of those who have died who are with Christ. They are with Christ and their body is here. We don't know exactly what that's like. But we do know that eternity, we have bodies. And that's the issue we're talking about today. What will our body be like? And Paul uses this metaphor of grain. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. So the question, what will happen in the final resurrection? When Christ returns in power and glory to claim his own. Well, what happens in that moment? The dead in Christ will rise first. Great. Wonderful. Crystal clear. We understand that. But the question that the Corinthians want to know is, what about our bodies? Am I going to look good in heaven? That's seemingly what's behind this. What will I look like in the age to come? So the dead in Christ will rise first. This means that let's say that you're still alive at the time of Christ's return. This means your dead relatives who are believers, their bodies will rise. And by the way, whether they were cremated or something worse than that, that's not a problem for God. He'll figure it out. Let's say that you had some sort of a operation or surgery where like they took away part of your body and you live. Let's keep it really nice and not that graphic. Let's say that you like got your finger amputated when you were like five. You had it closed in a car door, got knocked off, and then the car you, you just just gone. You're, you're you only have nine fingers for the rest of your life. Well, in the age to come, you're going to have ten. It's not a problem for God to go find that missing finger, and it's not a problem for God to find other missing limbs or body parts so that body that is raised that resurrected body is not a zombie it is not a zombie like body it's not like that almost dead body but just with a little more life in it like your relative who passed away it's not just reverting to five minutes before death and then that's the condition that you're in for the next 10 trillion plus years no Rather, your body, your resurrected body, is extraordinary. It is vibrant. It is full of life. The illustration that Paul gives for this, which would probably be more helpful for us if we were a farming community, but we're not, and I'm not, but I know like half a thing about grain, so we can talk about that because that's what Paul talks about. In verse 37, he brings forward this grain metaphor. What you sow, planting, not talking about needle and thread, we're talking about farming. What you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain. Perhaps wheat or some other grain. So, I'm going to change it from grain to corn, because we're more familiar with corn than we are with wheat. At least I'm assuming that you are, because we've all eaten at Chipotle recently, and Chipotle you can get corn in your burrito bowl. So, think with me. The metaphor of the grain, or the kernel, or the wheat, or the corn. He's describing your human body like a kernel of corn. Now, if you've never planted corn, just let me assure you that when they plant corn, they're planting those little yellow kernels. They're probably not yellow at this point. They're probably pink because they've been sprayed with insecticides. That's pink, or at least it was in the 90s. But that kernel of corn goes into the ground, but before it goes into the ground, you hold it in your hand and you look at it and it is shriveled up. It is more shriveled up than your 85-year-old grandmother's face right before she dies. All the moisture is gone from that corn kernel. So this kernel of corn that you hold in your hand and you stick it in the ground, as I used to do with my grandparents back in the day, it doesn't look like much. And it sure doesn't taste like much. It's not that good. But you put that in the ground, and then what happens a few weeks later? Well, a little sprout comes up. A little green leaf pops out of the dirt. And it begins... To grow. And it grows and grows and grows. And it, it goes from this little tiny thing to, uh, what do they say in Pennsylvania? Knee high by 4th of July, I think is their goal for the corn. They want it to be like that size. And then that indicates you're going to have a good crop. And then eventually by harvest time, you're talking like 7, 8 feet high. Taller than you. That's the reason why corn mazes work. Because that corn is taller than you and you can't see over it. So you have these stalks of corn with many ears of corn on them. Each of those ears of corn have probably, I don't know, two, three hundred kernels. That is hundreds of times better than what was planted. And this is the metaphor that Paul is using to describe your earthly body, which you have right now, being transformed into a heavenly body. He doesn't give us specifics, but he uses this metaphor. He uses this illustration. And I wish I knew what it meant. I wish I could give you specifics. But we certainly can imagine what it at least means. Let me go back to my notes. So think with me of a corn kernel. Oh, by the way, did you know Not going to make you raise your hands, but I really want to. Did you know that corn kernels are corn seeds? And I was going to ask, if you didn't know that, please raise your hand. But you can keep your hands down. A corn kernel is a corn seed. And they are planted and they grow to make an eight-foot-tall stalk of corn with several ears of corn. Or think of an apple seed that is planted and it grows into a sapling, then into a small apple tree, then into a great big apple tree. And that great big apple tree has hundreds of apples growing on it. And each of those apples has multiple seeds in it. And each of those seeds could then be planted to, to create this multiplying effect. Or think of those acorns on the sidewalk in Central Park. You know, the great big ones. Plant that and water it and nurture it and take care of it and see it become a hundred foot tall giant oak tree. In this metaphor, this this farming metaphor that Paul is using, your earthly body is the seed, and when your body is buried, it's like the seed buried in the ground and then springs to new life at the resurrection. So in the resurrection, that resurrected body is what? Well, it's indescribably better than the old one that was buried and put in the ground. As I said, I don't know what this means exactly. But I know what it at least means. For those of you who are on the younger side, I like talking like an old person, um, if you haven't discovered this yet, you will. But as you age, your body breaks down. So if you haven't experienced that yet, just ask Tim Sire about his knees. Say, talk to me about your knees. Your eyesight dims with age. Your reaction time isn't what it used to be. My baseball team, we have a guy who's 65 years old, and he can play with the young guys, and he's basically as good as us, but he hit a ground ball yesterday. We, we had threw two consecutive no-hitters. We had a no-hitter, and they had a no-hitter, both going at the same time into the final inning. And he came the closest to getting a hit in like the fifth inning. It was a ground ball up the middle. The second baseman made an incredible play threw on the move to first base. And he got him out by a step. And he said, if I was your age, I would have beat that out. I said, yeah. This man is 65 years old. He's not as fast as he was when he was 20. Your reaction time isn't what it used to be. Your knees hurt in ways they didn't used to hurt. Your joints develop arthritis. You get wrinkles on your face where your skin used to be smooth. Your hair changes color. It might go to something like white or gray. Or it might fall out. Your immune system gets weakened. You develop diseases that you didn't have before. Or your memory's not as sharp as it used to be. Think of the effect of COVID on your memory. Or at least... Mine and several other people I know you, you can't remember Bible verses like you used to you can't, I, I can't quote songs like I used to Because it's just not there anymore in my head Where it used to be Or that's, that's on the, 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 your memory emptying side But on the other side of the effects of the fall on your mind Your memory, the things you can remember Are these haunting, horrible memories Of, of horrific acts that you've witnessed or suffered So your body has experienced and is continuously experiencing the effects of the fall. So what are things like in the age to come? What what is your resurrected body like? Well, it's at least better than all of this stuff. So at the end of your life, finally, when you finally die... Your body has run its course and is all out of life. When God raises you from the dead, your new body will be of a greater quality, a greater substance than it was before. Exponentially greater. Not just like rewinding the clock five years or ten years or whatever you think was your, your peak. The older I get, the more I see that the world is not as God originally created it to be. But more narrowly speaking, not just the world at large, but life itself, your life, my life, our human lives, this is not as God originally created it to be. Stuff is broken. Not just our bodies, but our minds, our souls, our emotions, our memories, all sorts of things. Every aspect of our humanity is severely impacted by the fall. This is what total depravity means. It means that every aspect of our humanity is impacted by the fall. The world is fallen, and humanity in particular is fallen, and today's passage is about our bodies. And how they are fallen, but how they will be restored and renewed and resurrected. And what that's going to be like. What the glory on the other side is going to be like. Let's return to our text before we move to my cross-reference. But verses, um, we just read 35 through 37, 38, God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh for men, then another of animals, another of fish, another of birds. Verse 40, there are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. The glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. Speaking of an earthly body versus a heavenly body, as a spiritual body. Then there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. He's using these metaphors to say there is this one type for the one thing. Well, in the resurrection, there is a greater glory. There is a greatness that you're not currently experiencing, that you will experience after you are raised from the dead, if you are in Christ. The body is sown in corruption. It is planted in the ground as a corrupted body, decayed body. And it is raised in incorruption. It comes out of the grave exponentially better than it went in. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body and so it is written The first man Adam became a life-giving being the last Adam became a life-giving uh, the first man Adam became a living being the last Adam became a life-giving spirit This text from 1 Corinthians 15 reminds me of Romans 8 Romans 8:18 8, says, "I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Not just to us, not just something that we're going to see, but there actually is a glory that God is going to reveal in us. When I say in us, I mean like, in Trenton, in Luke, in Matthew. There is a glory going to be revealed in you, through you, in your life on the other side of the resurrection that you haven't even tasted yet. We haven't even, we haven't even gotten there yet. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits... For what? Well, it says, for the revealing of the sons of God. So the world is waiting, the creation is waiting to see the revealing, the the big unveil. Think of like, you know, Apple every year having their new unveil. Hey, we got an iPhone 15. It's just like the last one, only it's another hundred bucks more and it has a new camera. It's the same thing as last year's model, just a little bit different. No, this is, this is exponentially greater. It's qualitatively different and greater. And so the world is waiting. Creation is waiting for the big reveal. It's waiting for the, the curtain to be pulled up and for the, the cosmos, the entire world, to see the glory that is revealed in the sons of God. Verse 20 says, the creation, Romans eight twenty, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. It is confident expectation because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. So the world is waiting for this. It is longing for this. And when I say the world, I mean like this. The, the, the physical world, like the rocks and the trees and the, the weather, like the clouds and stuff, the, the molecules of this earth, those things are. Metaphorically speaking, looking, they don't all have eyes, animals have eyes, but they're looking and they're seeing, they're waiting for the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. And the reason why they're waiting for that, the reason why they're longing for that is because when creation sees that, then creation knows that its deliverance from the bondage of corruption that it has experienced will soon come. Verse 21 says, The creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. I think this, this is a thing that I certainly haven't spent hardly any time thinking about in my entire life. So I assume most of you have probably also not thought of this. But that is that on the other side of the resurrection, it's going to be good. Really, really good. In a way that we can't even fathom. You know, we, we might have a little bit of um, poetry in our minds about like all the sad things coming untrue. It's easy enough to think about that. But this is like 10 billion times better than that. The glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. He's describing this life, this day to day life with the groaning and the agony of childbirth. I'm going to do as my father called meddling for a second so meddling is where you get off into stuff you probably shouldn't get into but let me just say there are Instagram influencers who are absolutely full of it and they need to stop they need to just delete their accounts and stop talking because they lie in every post and one of those lies that I saw for much of about a year ago was that childbirth isn't, isn't painful and I'm like oh it's not painful I'm, I've never experienced this, and I'm never going to experience this. But allegedly, if you just you know, breathe the right way and, and think the right way and just kind of do the right things, this won't hurt. These are lies, okay? Not even a little bit true. And now if I stop meddling and get back to the book, the Bible says, pains of childbirth... <laughs> We know that the whole creation groans and labors with pangs together until now. You've got to wrap your mind around this at least a little bit and to understand this is the, why, this is the reason why everything is messed up. If you have this upside-down eschatology where you think everything is great, this is the kingdom and it's getting better and better, you're not going to understand this because this verse does not work in your theology. You don't have a category for like a World War III. The whole creation groans and labors together with birth banks together till now. Verse 23. Not only that, but we also. So think of the shriveled up seed imagery or the shriveled up corn kernel or your grandmother who's dying. We also groan in the labors of birth pangs together, waiting for the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption. This adoption that is referenced here is not the spiritual adoption that we're talking about in salvation, where you're adopted into the family of God. That's a, that's a thing that, it's, it's a legal declaration that has already happened for each one of us. We're not waiting for that. That's happened. But this adoption that is referenced here, we always interpret Words in light of their context and what is being discussed in that spot, not just what a dictionary says. So this use of the word adoption here is not speaking of your salvation. It's speaking for something in the future that we're waiting for, and that is on the other side of the resurrection. So we're eagerly waiting for the adoption, which is defined in this verse as the redemption of our body. Our physical body coming up out of the grave, or out of the sea, or out of wherever it is that we died. Verse 24 says, We were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Oh, I hope I'll make it to church this morning. Well, you're here, so you're not actually hoping. You, you made it. That's not hope. If we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly Wait for it With perseverance Don't give up Precious saints You are eagerly waiting For the redemption of your body You're eagerly waiting for the future When things that are Really messed up Will get straightened out You're eagerly longing for that And you think about it every single day This is not how it's supposed to be So you're waiting for it. You wait for it with perseverance. So don't give up. Your experience in that is not unusual. There are many who have experienced that before. The psalmist writes in Psalm 42, verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God. That's the way we wait for it with perseverance. Verse 26 says, likewise, the spirit, this is still Romans eight. The spirit also helps us in our, not just weakness, but weaknesses, plural. We have a lot of weaknesses. At least I do. And we experience these things again and again and again. And you're like, oh man. I thought I was over that. I thought I was done with that. I thought I conquered that thing. No, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, all of them, not just the one or two. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us. When we don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That's not speaking in tongues. Verse 27, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good. This is a word of comfort that Paul is writing in this verse to these Roman Christians that have experienced their fair share of suffering. And they know what it is to long for the redemption of their bodies as they're perhaps observing some of their Christian friends, their brothers and sisters in their church getting hauled off and executed. And they're saying, this is not what it's supposed to be like. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called those... He justified, and whom he justified, those he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This theme from 1 Corinthians 15 that I believe is also reflected in Romans 8 the idea that the whole world is broken and it is groaning and agonizing groaning or if you haven't been in a birthing room room where birth is happening groan is a really nice word for it it's more like an agonizing scream and I know that we kind of get dressed up a little bit on Sundays and we're like hey we got it together But some of us are not that together Monday through Saturday. And your world has a a bit more of that agonizing scream of this is not how it's supposed to be. Well, take comfort in knowing that on the other side of the resurrection, it's not just going to be a little bit better. It's not just going to be like, hey, how things were back when life was good, you know. A couple years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, back when you were younger, back when everything was peaceful and happy, you had that good job or whatever. No, it's not just rewinding the clock a little bit, but it is exponentially greater in a way that we can't even fathom. But the image used is that of a seed planted in the ground and flourishing up and growing up into a harvest. So the idea is the whole world is broken and groaning and agonizing sorrow as it waits for the revelation of the resurrected saints, the children of God in the new creation. Remember that humanity, man and woman, bear the image of God. Humanity bears the image of God in a unique way out of all of creation. The image of God, though, has been marred. It has been distorted. It is not lost, but it is damaged. Think of a beautiful piece of art that goes through a horrible fire. Say, like the Guggenheim, it gets burnt to the ground. And there at the end of it, you're wandering around the Upper East Side, and it's like a post apocalyptic world, and you're just like, whoa, what's happening here? And you kind of dig through the rubble, and you're like, oh, well, this looks like it was a piece of art. And so, what do you have? You have a frame that's charred and black. The canvas is mostly scorched. But around the edges, there are places where the paint is still visible. There are places where the canvas is burned completely through. But as you hold it in your hands, what do you know? Well, you know this is a piece of art. You know it's an image. But it's burned pretty bad. At the fall, the image of God in man was not erased. But it was horrifically marred. Almost beyond recognition. Almost. This is the reason why I just had a thought. I'm not sure if we should go there or not. This is the reason why the more transparent an unbeliever is with a believer. The more integrity there is in their relationship, as well for the, the Christian going towards them, the, the greater the contrast is between them. Because this unbeliever is actually far worse spiritually than they present themselves. They might present themselves like, oh, I'm a good person. You know, I'm a a nice, hardworking family man or nice, um, you know, housewife or whatever it may be. I've got it together. I'm I'm a good person. But the spiritual reality behind this is this person who is not a Christian who has had the image of Christ 0% formed in them. This person is actually kind of right there next to a demon as far as their spiritual horror. The spiritual evil that is in them is all still in them. None of it's been eradicated yet. And this is why a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. a non-Christian. Because you, as a child of God, you as one who is not only made in the image of God, but has the image of Christ being restored in them, the contrast between these two is so Great, it is so drastic That you only even begin to be aware of it As that veil of deception That we call dating begins to lower And then you realize like, oh boy This person is Right there next to Satan himself Not in a unique way, just in an ordinary way That most lost people are, you know By the way, if you're here today and you're not a Christian I love you, I'm glad you're here But if you're lost, you're lost, and you need to be found. You need to be born again because you are presently in the grips of Satan, and we want to see you rescued from that. We want to see you become a child of God. And you can. The offer is made. Jesus died for sinners like you and like me. He paid it all that we, who are children of darkness, children of the devil, can be restored. We can be renewed. We can brought, be brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We can be saved, and then we can be sanctified. We can grow. We can have that image of Christ restored in us in a way that is far greater than what I could describe with that piece of art. Because I'm not sure a art repairman can fix what I just described. At the fall, the image of God in man was not erased, but it was horrifically marred and almost beyond recognition. Almost. But there is the mission of God. The mission of God is to redeem and restore fallen man to relationship with himself. Why? Because he wants to display his glory by transforming man and woman perfectly into the very image of Christ. Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ, is the image of God, the exact imprint of his nature. This is what God is doing in the world today. He is redeeming and restoring fallen man into relationship with himself. And our text today, both 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 8, teach us that if you want to redeem the cosmos... You want to redeem the world, or maybe that's a bit much for you. You're not ready to hop on a rocket ship and go save Mars. You just want to say, save your, your neighborhood or renew your city or your society. This is the way, Western man, for you memers out there. This is the only way to save the world. The only way to save the world is to see the Lord Jesus Christ redeem and restore fallen man to relationship with God, to display the glory of God by transforming man perfectly into that very image, the image of Christ. And society, not society, uh, the world is longing for that. Have you ever thought of it? The, 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 from Romans 8, the creation itself is longing for e- with eagerness, groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. Have you ever thought that the sidewalks are groaning because all these non-Christians are walking on them and the sidewalks are saying in a, in a way, they're like, would you people please just repent? How to redeem the world? Well, we do this in effect Uh, What it means to save the world is to bring the glory of Christ to bear in the lives of his people. The more his people behold his glory, the more they absorb his glory. The more they absorb that glory, the more that glory shines back out of their lives and transforms others as well. So let's see what this looks like. A sinner, saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, not of works, not of getting it together, not of being a good person or trying really hard or coming to church a whole bunch. No, it's by faith in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection for you. So you believe that and then boom, suddenly, you're now saved. Not in a process, but in an instant. You're saved. What happens next? Well, the glory of God comes into their life. The glory of God rests upon them. You are now a child of God. You've been transformed, transferred from the kingdom and domain of Satan into the kingdom of God. Now you are a child of God, a citizen of God's spiritual kingdom. And what begins now is this transformation process where more and more you are conformed into the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, who takes the means of grace. The means of grace are the things that we do here on Sunday and hopefully you do on your own time as well, such as reading the Bible and praying and singing and worshiping and fellowshipping and speaking to other Christians about things of God. All that stuff. Those are the means of grace. There's a few more. So the Holy Spirit takes those things and He quickens them by His Spirit to make those effective or effectual for the sanctification of the believer in order to demonstrate God's glory to the world. Both the human world and the spirit realm. God does this in order to showcase his glory to the entire cosmos. By the way, before we move on, did you know that you can take the means of grace and not actually grow? Like, you can be reading the Bible, you can be um, Studying it and doing all these things And you do those things in your own strength Apart from trusting, apart from asking Apart from grace, apart from the Holy Spirit And and, and have no effect What you need is you need The Spirit of God To take those things As you are Holding your Bible in your hand You pray and you say, Lord, please help me Help me to understand Your word Please sanctify me It is the Spirit who sanctifies us. We don't sanctify ourselves. Even where the Bible says, sanctify yourself, what that's talking about is that this is by the strength which God supplies. It is by the Holy Spirit. Back to the the glory of God concept. Um, So God wants to demonstrate His glory to the world. This glory is not fully revealed to the world until the final resurrection. This is not the same thing as our own glorification. So let's make sure we think carefully here. In our own glorification, when we see Jesus face to face... That's what happens after we die. So you die, and you are suddenly transported into the presence of Christ where you are glorified. We are made perfectly holy. Full and final salvation. Saved to sin no more. We will shine like the sun. This is not the same thing as the final resurrection. This glorification happens at our death. But the final resurrection happens at the return of Christ. So make sure we keep our categories clear here. First John 3 describes this glorification. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Behold, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So when we see Jesus, when we stand before him, we will be completely sanctified. We will be glorified. We will be made perfect. But that's not the same thing as the final resurrection. That final resurrection is when our body comes back. Um, Let's talk for a second about verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Spirit. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The first... Sorry, I'm like struggling to read today. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. One commentator says there is a finality about the last Adam. There will be no other head of the human race. Um, One preacher that I used to listen to a lot said... There's the first Adam and there's the last Adam. God doesn't do second, third, fourth chances. He gave us one chance. We blew it. There was one Adam and he's like, all right, you blew it. So I'm sending the last Adam. We're not not doing uh, multiple do-overs here. By the way, this fact that that Jesus is the last Adam and that there is no other head of the human race. This has massive implications for concepts of corporate guilt and race relations and racism and all that sort of thing. Because this means that no one else is going to represent you on behalf of a huge group of people. Jesus was the last Adam. Adam. There are two races of people. There are those in Adam and those in Christ. So think about that. And remember that before you go uh, visit relatives at Thanksgiving. (laughs) No, I'm just saying, like, at Thanksgiving time, we, we have interactions with relatives who, like, they might be Christian, or Christian sort of. And then they say the most, like, Uncomfortable things, and you're just like, wait a second. I'm not calling. I'm not saying my family's racist. My family's definitely not racist, of course not. But imagine with me. No, they're really not. But I'm just there's, there. There are scenarios where they'll be like, well, you know, you have a child now, and you, you know, this is like in missions textbooks. It, the illustration given in mission missionary textbooks is that, um, you know, you you take your wife and you move to the other side of the world and then you have a kid and then you raise this child and you plant a church in this foreign country where nobody looks like you and then you go back home and you visit your relatives at like Thanksgiving or Christmas or you know maybe 10 years in and they're like so when are you going to come back you're like well I'm not I, I, I lived there like well you know when your kid gets older like you know your son is going to fall in love with a, you know a local girl who is, is part of the church and you know we, we want We want our grandkids to, you know, look like us. These are real things that happen, okay? These are real conversations that really take place where the grandparents are more concerned that their grandkids have the same complexion as them rather than that they be of the same true race, which is the race, the the being of Christ, And the reality is that I would rather my son, who hopefully will one day be saved, I would rather him marry another Christian, regardless of what she looks like, than that she be white and from Florida. (laughs) That's just not even something I think about. But speaking of resurrected bodies, um, today's text describes the resurrection body that we will have after Jesus returns. God's people will be so transformed to their resurrection that the glorious transformation will be like the transformation from a grain of wheat or a kernel of corn that goes into the ground and is broken and it comes to life and it sprouts and it breaks through the soil and it grows upward towards the sun as it receives water and nourishment from the soil and fertilized. By this. This is an amazing metaphor. And I'm glad Paul used it. So that seed is broken, comes to life, sprouts, and breaks through the soil and grows towards the sun. It receives water and nourishment from the soil and fertilizer. Then in time, that stalk of corn that comes from that one kernel or one seed bears many ears of corn that gives life to so much more. And if you think that I'm maybe not on the right track here, one of the helpful things in our Bible study is to continue to read and to continue to see what themes are appearing in our text. So look at verse 49. Chapter 15, verse 49. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. That's what he's driving at. That's the theme. And he's, he's connecting it. I'm trying to connect it. We're trying to make this clear. So what will it be like when we perfectly image the heavenly man? When we perfectly look like Jesus, the last man, the last Adam? What will that be like? We don't know. But, in conclusion, thinking about the glory of heaven, one of my favorite songs that I tried to quote about two months ago, I have the text here, so I will read it to you. And then we'll be done. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks the summer morn i've sighed for the fair sweet morn awakes dark dark has been the midnight but day spring is at hand and glory glory dwelleth in emmanuel's land O christ he is the fountain the deep sweet well of love the streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean fullness, his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The king there in his beauty, without a veil, is seen. And where a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between, the lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. With mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove, and I, the dews of sorrow, were lustered by his love. I'll bless the hand that guided, I'll bless the heart that planned, where throned, when throned where glory dwelleth. In Emmanuel's land. When you stand there in glory, then you're looking back and you see the hand that guided you, the heart that planned it all. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And probably my favorite. Verse in all of hymnody, verse 6. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not Not at the crowns he giveth, but on his pierced hands. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. My Father, as we consider the glory of heaven and we don't know, we don't know what it will be like for our bodies to be transformed, to be like Jesus perfectly. But we can read in the pages of Scripture and to see what Jesus is like And we can see that today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. I pray for those who are in the room today who are not saved, that they would be saved. That they would be called. That they would hear your gospel call as if it were calling them by name. Lord, I pray that you would help us or believers, that we would be encouraged and strengthened by these things. That we would long for that day where we are resurrected and all of the fallen corruption that we experience each day, all those things are over. And we see the King there in his beauty, without a veil between. Lord, I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.